Prologue. All we know about life is what we know. We don't know whether or not the routine of our lives is normal or abnormal until we get perspective. And perspective requires an understanding of the lives of others. Which is, I suppose, why people try to ban so many books that are windows into the lives of other people. Controlling ideas is to control people. There were no books about what I experienced growing up. No after-school specials. No courses in school or at church. And so I fumbled through my life. As I produced Family's End, I was listening to a draft in the kitchen one afternoon so intently that when my husband walked in, I was so startled that if my eyes had been lasers, he would have been dead where he stood. My reaction was so visceral. I felt as if I'd been stabbed and simultaneously electrocuted. And this reaction completely surprised me. I had no idea that 40 years later, I had any residual feelings for the final years of my parents' marriage. As I processed my reaction with my therapist, she pointed out I'd managed to recap almost every emotionally charged situation I had endured as a child in one 22-minute episode. The sexual abuse directed by my brother, my lack of memories around my father's abuse, which prevented me from understanding what drove me to try and blow him, my mother accusing me of being a faggot in the aftermath of same, while never bothering to investigate how any of that came to be, my father never mentioning my offer to fillet him, or his concerns about my sexuality, my literal ignorance as to how to navigate my sexual experiences in ninth and 10th grade, my deep and unrequited love for Bobby, the way I had to live during my parents' separation as my father moved on with his life while we lived below him, my father betraying my trust in him and ultimately abandoning me, and the ultimate disillusion of my parents' marriage and my resultant departure from the only home I'd ever known for a shithole apartment in the worst part of town. And when she put it to me that way, it made perfect sense. The last year of my parents' marriage tore apart my life as I knew it. I went from a lifetime of knowing everyone around me to an area where I had no opportunity to form friendships in an apartment that was barely habitable. My mother had a year to find some place to live. She could have moved five to ten miles outside of town in any direction and found affordable, more appropriate housing. And again, I can't help but think it was more optics to garner sympathy from her friends. As a child, I never had the time to process my parents' divorce. There was always a competing priority that required my attention. Producing Family's End was the first time I had the space and opportunity to consider the impact those events had had on my life. I'd been carrying that anger around for so many years, I didn't even know it was there and I was unprepared for its release. I've learned when a memory hijacks me in such a profound way, it's a neon sign pointing to where the work needs to be done, which is both annoying as fuck and incredibly helpful. I've learned to face my history, unpack it, and have faith that things will be better on the other side. When we have triggers that hijack us like that, examining and being accountable for those triggers is our responsibility. We're never too old or too young to face the truth and do the work. Life has a never-ending supply of moments in which we have to decide to wallow or rise. Skyborn Episode 8, Changes by K.G. Lockrams We were now living in the apartment by the railroad, under the bridge, and it was every bit as disgusting and depressing as I had expected it would be. 
One Saturday that fall, I stopped by the music store to kill some time and catch up with the owner and his assistant. I arrived before opening, and the owner let me in. Linda will be in soon. If you want to work, grab a razor blade and scrape the old tape off the storefront window. I went to the back and got the ladder and a blade. As I came to the front of the store, Linda came through the front door in a rage. You're late, he called out to her. Again, he said under his breath. I eventually figured out that they were lovers, which explained everything about their dynamic. I will never understand, she continued, ignoring him, how people can be such cruel assholes. She gently set her bag on the counter nearest her and tossed her coat on the floor. Kit, you're never going to believe it. I was driving down the highway by Arthur Treacher's, and the people in the car in front of me, going about 40, rolled down their window and tossed this out. She reached into her bag and pulled out a kitten. It was a yellow tabby, a boy, and still had blue eyes. He was mewling loudly and kept trying to scramble out of her hands. Linda reached over the counter to pop open the till and said, Go next door and pick up a litter box, litter, and some food. She handed me some cash. I took the money and turned to leave for the Kmart next door. Over my dead body, I heard the owner say. I should be so lucky, she shot back. As the door began to close behind me, I heard the two of them begin to argue about how she wasn't going to keep some goddamn cat at his store. By the time I got back, the fight was over and he had won. Kit, do you think your mother would let you have a kitten? It needs a home and you need a distraction. I called my mom from the store phone and to my surprise, she said yes, as long as I understood I was completely responsible for its care. Later that day, my mother picked me up in the station wagon and we loaded up my bike and the kitten's things and took him back to our apartment. I hope it doesn't pee everywhere, my mother said. How would you tell the difference from how the place smells now? I asked. Don't be a smart-ass kit. The landlord never had cleaned the carpets, and although we rented a steam cleaner from the grocery store, the smell was never coming out. The following weekend, my brother came home from college and stayed with us. He majored in music and was no longer on track to graduate in four years. He arrived late that Friday night, high or drunk, I couldn't tell the difference, and passed out on the living room sofa. I was the first up the next morning and went into the living room and turned on the TV. Turn that down, he snarled. It was barely on, but it wasn't worth arguing with him. I turned the volume down. The kitten crawled out from behind the sofa and scaled the side up to the armrest nearest my brother's head. It gently batted at his hair, and he absentmindedly swatted back at it. Then it went to climb onto his head and check things out. As soon as it stepped on him, my brother reached up, grabbed it by its small head, and threw it across the room. It hit the wall, bounced off, and landed motionless on the floor. What is wrong with you? I shouted and ran over to check on the kitten. It wasn't breathing. That fucking thing better be dead or the next time it touches me, it will be, he shouted back. I was suddenly in the backyard of our house, all those years ago, laying stunned on the ground next to the garage, unable to breathe, after having fallen from the roof line when the ladder had broken. I slowly scooped the kitten up with both hands, supporting his limp head, and rolled him onto my left palm, supporting his neck with my fingers. I gently massaged his belly and chest with my right hand. He took a breath, shook his little head, opened his blue eyes and climbed up my shirt sleeve to my chest, and rested on the top of my belly. I stood up and shouted, You are such an asshole! Fuck you, he said.
I took the kitten to my bedroom and locked the door. My brother left later that morning to hang out with his friends and see our father. I told my mother what he'd done. Well, it shouldn't have scratched him, she said. Is that what he told you? Did you see a scratch? I asked. She ignored me and left the room. As the first few weeks in the apartment passed, it became clear my mother had rented an apartment under a couple of prostitutes. Two women in their 20s lived upstairs, each with a toddler. Endless numbers of men came and went all hours of the day and night. They'd arrive in couples or small groups, stay an hour or two, and as they'd leave, the women would hang out the front window of the second story and call out their gratitude for various things. One woman once called out to two men as they got into their pickup truck, Thanks for the earrings, fellas. Jewelry, cigarettes, booze. It was like a flesh trade swap meet. I went from sleeping under my father with him occasionally having sex with his now fiancé to living under a couple of women turning tricks all day and night. Now that we weren't neighbors, and given neither of us had access to a car, Bobby and I no longer hung out beyond school and work. Things had cooled with he and Diane. He never said what happened with those pictures he'd asked me to take, but soon after he'd given them to her, their relationship changed. Diane started spending most of her time with a girl a year behind us in school. Maybe the pictures weren't the hit he hoped they would be. I dreaded coming home each afternoon, as much as I dreaded going to school each morning. I was clearly depressed. As the days grew shorter, my depression grew deeper. I wasn't even enjoying marching band or choir anymore. The people I liked most had graduated. The choir director had retired at the end of the previous year. The band director was a pompous ass, which was nothing new. I just became more tuned into his bullshit. To stroke his own ego, he would regularly give himself a solo at school concerts, rather than showcasing a student's talent. The new choir director was a recent college graduate, and we went from singing complex classical pieces to watered-down standards. In general, every aspect of my life was changing. I had no control over it, and I didn't like it. And I was still compensating with food, and continued to put on weight. I'd come home, go to my room, turn on the air purifier that did nothing, put on my headphones, and escape into the music of Prince and the Revolution and Sheila E., while playing with a cat, avoiding my homework, and wondering how the hell I was going to get out of my life. The day after Halloween, I got to school, and everywhere I looked, people were crying. What's going on? I asked the first person I saw. I just got here, too. All I know is David and his sister were in a car accident last night. David was the guy who had slammed my wrist in my locker door in middle school as he ran past and called me a fag. He turned out to be a decent kid, always smiling and joking around, and was thought of as the class clown. As the gossip turned to facts, I learned he and his sister, who had been driving, were heading home along a local rural highway that ran under the interstate. There was a truck stop where the highway and interstate crossed, and a tractor trailer had pulled out in front of them. They crashed into it at full speed. The truck stop was notorious for accidents, as the highway wasn't wide enough to accommodate the trucks as they'd pull out into traffic. No streetlights had been installed at the intersection when it was built. Reflectors weren't as efficient or prevalent on trucks as they are now and truckers would often fail to activate their running lights. As the trucks would enter the highway, they'd completely block it. They relied on their sheer size to force other traffic to yield. But without proper lighting, or the use of their running lights, they were difficult to see at night, until it was too late. David's sister suffered disfiguring injuries, 
and he had been flown to the nearest trauma center, 60 miles away. He was pronounced dead on arrival. David and I weren't close. If anything, I resented the hell out of him every time I looked at the scar on the underside of my left wrist. But that moment in middle school created a bond between us. I felt connected to him because in scarring me, he physically became a part of my story forever. The funeral was held at a parlor in the center of town. I felt it was the right thing to do to go. Hundreds of people came to the viewing, mostly classmates. I slowly made my way through the line, and as I got near to the front of the funeral parlor, I realized it was an open casket. From the descriptions I had heard of the accident, I wasn't expecting that. Other than my paternal grandmother, I'd never even seen a dead body. I looked down on him lying in his coffin, his hairstyle not quite right, his normally rosy cheeks, chalky white, and his normally bright red lips, pale and bloodless. All the energy and youth had been erased forever from his face. He was the first peer I'd ever seen dead, and it hit me deeply. Although I once hated him for what he'd done, I found myself crying for him and the life he'd never have. Through his death, my scar became a memento. I no longer felt anger at it, but rather a sad gratitude for the reminder of a young life lost. His death and his sister's disfigurement fueled a fight that raged against the local and state government for months to have a traffic signal installed at the intersection. His was not the first life lost there, and during the fight for a light, there were other horrific accidents. David's friends and classmates were joined by the friends and family of others who had lost loved ones in the same manner at the same intersection. Eventually, they prevailed and a traffic light was installed. Life returned to the routine of school, marching band, and work. Our apartment had a heaviness about it that drained any positivity from the air. It felt malevolent. The relentless combination of cat urine and fuel oil gave me a headache any time I was home. The non-stop sex traffic upstairs was profoundly disturbing, and the basement with its dirt floor and bare stone walls made my skin crawl. It had no windows and no door other than the one at the top of the stairs from the kitchen. There was a bifold door with a simple hook and eyelatch, and at least once a week, my mother or I would come into the kitchen in the morning, and the door would be unlatched and wide open. It's the cat, my mother would say dismissively. She believed the cat was playing with the latch from the kitchen counter. The problem with that theory was the latch was 30 inches away from the counter, and the cat wasn't strong enough to jump up there. It was unnerving and unexplainable. I have no memory of Thanksgiving that year. I don't remember my sister ever coming to the apartment for the weekend that fall. Not that I blamed her. The last Friday before Christmas break, just before lunch, I was summoned to the principal's office. Normally, the loudspeaker system would be used to call a student to the office, but instead, an office aide was sent to the classroom. Everyone watched the exchange at the door as the aide handed the teacher a note. She read it, looked up, and said, Kit, I need you to get your things and go to the principal's office. The class reacted with the usual, you're in trouble. But other than my grades, I couldn't think of anything I'd done to warrant a trip to the principal's office. I grabbed my things and met the office aide in the hallway. What's going on? I asked. I can't tell you, she said. Oh, come on, one aide to another. No, Kit, I, I was told not to say anything. 
When I entered the office, Mrs. Labor was standing there, watching me with a stone face. Kit, I'm here to pick you up. The Labor family had been in my life since I was born. When my parents moved into the development where I was raised, they had lived next door and became good friends. A couple of years later, they moved out, but the friendship remained. Mr. Labor and my mother had an unusually intimate bond. He was once struck by lightning, and she helped him while he recovered. It was always clear to us kids she carried a torch for him. He and his wife were the first people I knew to get divorced. He was a devout Catholic, and I don't know how they swung it, having had two children already, but somehow they managed to get an annulment. His now ex-wife joined a convent, and he retained custody of their two children, a girl and a boy. He loved to entertain. There were pool parties throughout the summer, fireworks on the 4th of July, Super Bowl parties, and our family attended all of them. He was a warm man, but firm. You wouldn't dare talk back to him, but then he wasn't the kind of man who would give you a reason to do so. Most of my early fond childhood memories are entwined with him and his two children. Eventually, he remarried. His second wife was cold and off-putting. She expended just the right amount of energy necessary to be civil without crossing the line into warm or engaging. She had also been married, but was a widow and had two children of her own, both girls. Her first husband had committed suicide. He was found in their home, dead, dressed in women's clothing, which is all I ever knew about her prior life. To see her standing in the office to pick me up made my heart drop. Something had to be terribly wrong for her, of all people, to personally come and get me. What's going on? Why are you here? I asked. Kit, there's been a fire, she said. What? Where's my mother? She's okay. She's at the hospital. What? You, you just said she was okay. Working. She's at the hospital working and couldn't get away. She called and asked if one of us could pick you up and take you home. I'm confused. Where was the fire? I asked. There was a fire at your apartment. The fireman cut holes in the floor of the upstairs apartment to drain the water used to put it out. The water damaged your place in the process. I'm taking you home, with me, to our house. You and your mom are going to stay with us until you can sort things out. She turned to the secretary. Can someone help him get what he needs from his locker? And a few minutes later, we were on our way to her house. What about my cat? Is he alright? I asked as we left the high school. I've told you all I know, she said. My mother's shift was over at 3.30, and someone drove me to the apartment to meet her and collect what we could before the sun set. The exterior of the second story was stained with soot around the windows. There was no power, and the interior was dark as the sun was already behind the bridge. Just sitting on the sidewalk, I could smell smoke. We went inside, and the acrid smell of wet soot welcomed us in. My mother walked around assessing the situation, and I went in search of the cat, and found him under my bed. He was terrified. I found a box and put him inside with one of my shirts. Get what you need for tonight and put it in a trash bag, she said. We can wash everything at the labors and come back tomorrow for the rest. Tears welled in her eyes, and her lip began to quiver. I put my hand on the back of her shoulder. She violently shrugged it off. I didn't know what to think. I hated living there. But barely four months after we'd moved here from my childhood home, and my world was turned upside down again. My mother was standing in the living room looking at the dining set. The hole in our ceiling to the apartment upstairs was directly over the dining room table. Everything in the room was wet. 
Daddy bought that set for your father and I as a housewarming present, she said. She and I had quite different emotional ties to that dining table. She grabbed some towels and we did our best to wipe the wood furniture dry. I suppose it can all be refinished, she said. Thank God I got that insurance policy. What happened, do you know, I asked. One of the bastard kids in that brothel upstairs was playing with matches or something while his whore mother was passed out. He set the place on fire, she paused. They were treated at the hospital for smoke inhalation. It was all I could do not to go down and give her a piece of my mind. She was fighting back angry tears. She lost most of the hair off the front of her head from the flames, she said. Serves her right. I can't believe they didn't know this apartment had been rented. Who? I asked. The fire department. They drained the water through the floor because they thought it was vacant. Well, I said, you can't smell the cat urine. She flashed me angry eyes and gave a dark chuckle. Let's get out of here. I can barely see. And we headed to the other side of town to our temporary home at the Labors. The Labors blended family ranged in age from middle school to college. It included Mr. Labors' son from his first marriage. His daughter from his first marriage had moved out on her own by this point. The new Mrs. Labors' two daughters from her prior marriage. The son they had together and a niece that had moved in with them a couple of years earlier under circumstances I never fully understood, because no one ever discussed it. I had gone from dysfunctional family of five, to weird, separated family of three, to my mom and I in a shithole apartment, to living in an almost 4,000 square foot home on several acres along a stream with seven other people, a cockatoo, and my cat. Going from the experiences of my family into their dynamic was not an easy transition. I found myself constantly on edge. In stereotypes, their children were the jock, the tomboy bully, the spoiled princess, the grounded girl, and a son with a behavior problem that would ultimately land him in a military academy in his not-too-distant future. My mother slept in a guest room on the first floor off the family room. I stayed in the finished basement on a cot. Given the bird, the cat stayed in the cabana house by the pool. The blend of disruption and good fortune was surreal. The thing I remember most about that house was how well designed it was. It had pegged hardwood flooring, the biggest kitchen I'd ever seen in someone's home, with a ceiling made entirely of light panels. There were laundry chutes, a formal living room that no one ever used, with a grandfather clock and grand piano, the in-ground pool and accompanying cabana house. There was a finished attic loft, He even had a small section of rail line installed on the property for a train caboose he'd purchased and had fully restored. As our parents' marriage unraveled, they didn't socialize as much at parties with the laborers. I was grateful that they took us in, but I very much felt like a tolerated interloper. And to be fair, I was. We both were. The house was on a well and septic system, so the first thing Mr. Labor did was install misting shower heads in all the bathrooms to conserve water and protect the septic system. Though the right thing to do, this did not make our presence a welcome addition to the regular residents of the house. Going from a shower to a mist was not an easy transition, and the resentment on that front was instantaneous, not that I blame them. Given all the children were in different grades, the house felt more dormitory than home especially when the older children and my sister came home from college for winter break. My sister, whose first job was working in one of Mr. Labor's retail stores, seemed to enjoy the situation. Kit, you have to admit, it beats that apartment, she said. No argument there. She and Mr. Labor always had something of a father-daughter vibe. 
She had long admired him and used to wish he actually was her father. He knew what kind of man our father was and kept an eye out on my sister. There were many years I wondered if he truly was my father. He and my mother had an overly intimate relationship. They'd known each other for most of their adult lives and had been through a lot together. Other than my uncle, he was the only other functional adult male I'd ever seen her around. Maybe their connection was just normal and I simply didn't understand it. But their dynamic fueled my fantasy that maybe I was his son. The older I got, the more I looked like him and not my father. I had his height, his frame, his curly hair. I was desperate for a father figure I could admire, but my mother denied that possibility. Like Thanksgiving, that Christmas is also a blank. New Year's Eve was 11 days after the apartment fire. I worked the closing shift at the supermarket. We all punched out and left at 9 o'clock. Someone picked me up and took me back to the laborer's house, not 10 minutes away from the store. By the time we'd gotten home, the police scanners were broadcasting the news that there had been some kind of explosion and the supermarket was on fire. Everyone who worked at the store that night had left the building just before the explosion, and no one was injured. No damage beyond smoke was done to the adjacent buildings. I remember being grateful I wasn't there and simultaneously rattled as hell. Ten minutes after I'd walked out the door, it exploded and burned to the ground. It was a dramatic end to a dramatic year. That January was one of the coldest on record, and the entire county was shut down due to a blizzard, with wind gusts over 25 miles an hour and a resultant wind chill of 50 degrees below zero. I went out to the cabana one of those nights to check on the cat, and I couldn't find it. I checked in the closets and under the furniture. I shook his bag of treats, which always made him come running. Nothing. He was gone. I went back to the house and found almost everyone in the family room in front of the fire. Did anyone go into the cabana today? Everyone said they hadn't. My cat's missing. Everyone but the youngest son looked at me. I looked at him squarely. Were you in the cabana? Did you let my cat out? And still he wouldn't look me in the face. Under his breath he muttered, No. Mrs. Labor intervened. It doesn't matter how it got out, she said. The hell it doesn't, I thought. If it did, there's nothing to be done. It's probably dead by now from the cold. I looked at her in disbelief. She looked away and focused on the television. I could feel tears welling in my eyes at the thought of it having survived being tossed from a car, thrown against a wall by my brother, and a house fire, only to freeze to death from the carelessness of a child. I left the room and went to the basement where I was staying. I knew there wasn't anything I could do. No one offered to help. I was sure that little shit let him out and wasn't fessing up. I put dried cat food outside the cabana, but it was never eaten. I knew the truth of Mrs. Labor's comment. There was no way it could have survived those temperatures. And I was the only one that seemed to care, one way or another. By the middle of January, Mrs. Labor's goodwill was growing thin. We had now been house guests for a full month, and my mother had done nothing to look for a new place. One night, Mr. Labor offered my mother a drink, but not his wife, at which point his wife abruptly stood up, and as she walked out of the room, called back over her shoulder, Do you want a drink? Can I get you anything? How was your day? Are you comfortable? And she went up to bed. Mr. Labor locked eyes with my mother. My mother said, Well, I guess it's time I find a place. And within a week, her offer in a house in the neighborhood adjacent to the one I'd grown up in was accepted. We moved in the following month.
Epilogue. When I first began, I arrogantly imagined this podcast would be strictly an intellectual exercise. It never occurred to me I'd uncover so much emotional turmoil, and as I've said, the retelling is also re-traumatizing. Survivors are sometimes criticized for talking about their history. Why don't you ever shut up about fill-in-the-blank? As though for us the retelling of our trauma is some kind of indulgence. It is not. We are victim-blamed or shamed. What were you wearing? Why did you invite him back to your house? What were you drinking? You wanted it to happen, didn't you? Or we have our very truth flat out denied. Your, insert name of family member or close friend of family here, would never have done that to you. And yet, they did. Given that the people with whom we share our trauma are usually intimate friends or family, these thoughtless comments or flat out denials come most often from the people we love and trust the most, which hurts us all the more. We carry enough guilt, shame, and self-doubt all on our own. We don't need to hear it from loved ones. Disclosing any deeply personal information to another is an act of coming out of a closet. We choose to take something that we held in the dark, and we bring it to the light through an act of disclosure. People come out of any number of closets for any number of reasons. We come out about the loss of a child, a spouse, our health, an addiction, our failures in love or life. We share a defining story of ourselves either so others can know us, or as an act of empathy for someone going through a similar experience, so they know they are seen and understood. As we develop emotionally intimate relationships, disclosing information that is core to our life experience is essential in forming deep emotional bonds with friends and loved ones. People who have survived sexual trauma are no different. We share our stories to be known and understood. We share our stories as part of the therapeutic process, and sometimes, we share our stories to seek justice and hold a perpetrator accountable. And when we do that, we are taking the biggest risk of all, as we are laying ourselves bare with no idea whether or not the people with whom we are sharing our experience have any training or empathy to respond and act appropriately. Sharing a story of abuse with any authority, governing board, or law enforcement agency is an act of bravery, self-defense, and healing. Each time we make a new friend, each time we enter a relationship seeking emotional intimacy, each time we are asked even the simplest question on a date or at work, we are faced with a choice. Do I share something authentic about myself in this moment, or do I not? The first time I was confronted with a closet was in the second grade when my brother told my parents about my experiences with my friend Jim. My brother had done this in retaliation for my refusal to no longer let him pimp me out to his peers. The second was in eighth grade when my mother asked if I was a faggot. And again that same year, when the school guidance counselor asked me the same, when I had sought her help. It seems the older we get, as we broaden our life experiences, life's closets become more prevalent and complex. For most of my life, I learned to be okay with silently carrying my history alone. I had no one to talk with about my sexual abuse at the direction of my brother until my 20s. There was no one I could go to. Disclosing sexual abuse is difficult. Disclosing sexual abuse when one's abuser is the same sex as they adds another layer of complexity. The homosexual nature of my abuse clouded my sense of sexual identity for many years. The stigma of homosexuality contributes to why so many male survivors of sexual abuse who were abused by other men stay silent, especially abused men who identify as heterosexual. 
on top of all the other pain that comes with being abused, they don't want the additional stigma of being thought of as gay. And let's be honest, in America, as in many other countries, the stigma is very real. To pretend otherwise is to negate the realities of the LGBTQ experience. I have found that few people are equipped to discuss sexual abuse. Survivors can inadvertently trigger other survivors simply by sharing our experiences with one another. Society as a whole would rather not be faced with the consequences we survivors live with. Our consequences seem too uncomfortable for others to examine or contemplate. People's lack of empathy and unwillingness or inability to lean into the aftermath that is our journey is exactly how so many forms of abuse continue to thrive, quietly and just out of sight. If it's difficult for you to think about, imagine how difficult it is to live with. If someone decides to share the details of any trauma with you, it is often an act of trust or bridge building. We aren't seeking pity in telling you our story. We simply want to be seen, and we have the strength to claim our survivorship by telling you about it. People come out of a closet for many reasons. We come out for those who can't. We come out to be our whole selves. We come out to be a beacon for problems kept in the dark. Sharing one's trauma with another is not about selfish indulgence. It's about fortitude, honesty, and integrity. For the survivors listening, you are not alone. It can get better, even though it doesn't feel as though that's possible. The other side of pain exists. We simply don't know how long the journey is when we begin it. Have faith in the process when you have no faith in yourself. And remember, you are lovable.